This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 87 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking extremely preppy today, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, thank you for that wonderful rousing introduction. <laughs> now I hear that you've got sunshine or part sunshine. We have grey skies today. We've just had in the last couple of days nearly an inch of rain. So for that, I am thankful. But please stop now because I need to get out after this podcast. <laughs> Over in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson. Oh, isn't she just delicious? You look, you look like a pink meringue this morning. You can't tell, but half of the shirt is pink pinstripe and half of it is peachy orange pinstripe. Wow. <laughs> Very meringue. <laughs> yeah, I wore this especially for Alan Gray. Joining us this week, we are very excited to welcome Matt Collins to the podcast, of course, famous for writing in pretty much every publication you can lay your hand on, also head gardener at the Garden Museum in London. But before we get into all of that, do you have any middle names, Matt? Oh, goodness. Wow, what a question. <laughs> I do. I have a Welsh middle name. Uh it's it's I used to hate it as a child and I've sort of grown over over time to like it, but it's Howell with an H Y W E L, uh, which is about as Welsh as it comes. <laughs> my it was my my grandfather's uh, middle name as well. But yeah, Howell. Wow, what a question. Both my middle names came from grandfathers. There you go. That's Edward that. and Herbert. Lovely. Yeah, I mean that's what grandfathers are for, really. Names. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I have no grandfather names in mine. Um, but how did you get teased at all did, when, yeah, when kids at school? <laughs> Relentlessly, you're joking. How? Because no one could say it or spell it. So it was a daily chore to have to to have to go through. Really, um, how? Yeah, I wanted to. I tried to formally change it to Hugh for some reason <laughs> when I was when I was like. 10 or something I may, I demanded my parents change it to Hugh but thankfully they didn't they didn't go through with it and I'm I'm, I'm in older age I appreciate the, the more kind of uh I think that's what happens actually because you <laughs> have your parents for giving you the names you've got yes um, for a certain period of your life and then you sort of you actually grow into them as it were yeah you do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think a dear friend of ours who appears on this podcast regularly, Ian Roof, uh, likes to call himself on social media Ian Scott Roof because it reminds him of the likes of Graham Stewart Thomas, etc. Maybe you just <laughs> need to embrace it entirely, like Matt Howell Collins. Hugh Howell, yeah. <laughs> yeah Hugh, that's really quite good. Just change the whole thing. Just change the whole thing. No, you know, Graham Stewart Thomas only called himself, that was his middle name. His name was Graham Stewart Thomas. He called himself Graham Stewart Thomas because he thought it sounded posh. <laughs> He's a terrific old snob. Yeah, well, you've got to be oh. a few phrases, haven't you? <laughs> so I don't even know where to start with talking about you, um, Matt. There's so much to cover. I suppose oh, we nice. should start with the Garden Museum, just I suppose in case people don't know what it is. So yeah, well, anyway. it's funny. Lots, lots, lots of people don't really, um, but it's it's definitely a place that's getting a bigger and bigger name for itself which is really exciting I think we sort of we sort of claim the title that we're one of the very few museums that actually actively expanded our staff and our, our reach during the pandemic which is bizarre but I think really fortunately probably down to the fact that so many people started 
started gardening when they weren't gardening before which is which was good for us so yeah the garden museum is in central london it's opposite westminster it's got this amazing view uh, it's the part of the South Bank that people sort of forget. <laughs> so it's it's the bit that it's right next to Lambeth Palace. Uh, it's a former church building, St. Mary's Church, uh, that was sort of deconsecrated and left abandoned in the 70s. And uh, a lovely lady called Rosemary Nicholson uh, found it on account of some of the very sort of uh, esteemed people buried within the churchyard. Uh, a gardener herself, she found that the Tradescans were buried in the garden and they were sort of Britain's earliest garden celebrities and decided to sort of gradually revive the space and make it, you know, sort of preserve the tomb for a start, preserve the heritage of the Tradescan, of the Tradescans and uh, make it a garden museum. So it, we really began in the 70s and it sort of morphed and changed and went through a big redevelopment in uh, about five years ago uh, with a whole new sort of structure added to it. Uh, and now exists as a sort of yeah contemporary museum dedicated to the culture and uh, history and interest, particularly the British interest in in horticulture. And when did you enter into the garden museum's life? Uh, I came as a trainee actually about twelve years ago, which is shocking. I've been there a really long time, but um, I really ought to do something else with my time at some <laughs> point. But but I love it. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves working there. It's a wonderful space. So. I came as a garden trainee. Uh, they run a traineeship program, which I now run, which we take on one horticultural trainee a year. And we um, uh, we sort of introduce them to they get a chance to run the gardens, but they also get to go off and do lots of wonderful things and placements and spend time with gardeners and gardens. But yeah, I came as a trainee, went off to go and look after various other gardens, a pri- big private garden in Richmond for a while, and sort of meandered my way back to the museum uh, as a part-time sort of head gardener, effectively. And People who know your writing will know that it's it's obviously a horticultural, but there's a lot of travel writing in there. So is is travel something that you've always done? Uh, yeah, it is actually. Yeah, in short, yeah. My father was a, a sort of he's a vicar, but he he was a vicar, but he he used to travel around a lot, and he used to go when I was a child. He used to travel an enormous amount with him. Uh, and got to see lots of interesting parts of the world. But yeah, it's, it's always something that's fascinated me. And then as I got into horticulture, it just sort of the two worked really, really well. You know, seeing plants in their native environments became a real distraction for me. And so that's kind of, effectively, that's the, the niche. It's barely a niche because that's the basis of all horticulture, really, is where do plants come from. But that's kind of where my writing has ended up, is, is um, relating native environments to how we garden with plants in the UK. Yeah, and it's it's so exciting. You posted something the other day, which was an article you'd written for Toast, I think. Oh right. <laughs> and um and the, the the image of the bluebells. You have to just I think briefly tell us a bit about that trip. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a really spe- that's just Skoma Island off of Pembrokeshire, which is like I mean there there are a few islands there, but the, that Skoma is quite special, and it's a real bird island. It's full of crazy birds, but. But, and it's protected as a wildlife space. But the, yeah, what's astonishing is it used to be part of the mainland. It used to be wooded. It used to have ancient woodland there. And it was all cleared for agriculture uh, as, as it became an island. You know, once it was an island, it was then cleared. Um, and it's, it had the symbiotic relationship like old bluebell woods do between bluebells and trees. And then when the trees disappeared, the bluebells continued and they sort of developed a new relationship with the bracken that took over. So for a very brief period in spring, you get this um, unbelievable site where the whole island effectively turns blue purple. Um, but without the tree cover that you're used to associating with with um, bluebells. So it's just this like wonderland of, of, of sea of blue, which is my obsession. It's like my favourite thing in the world, you know, like acres and acres of just flowers and nothing else. It's amazing. <laughs> should go. Everyone should go. May time. The best. You're in the right place, I think, if your obsession is acres and acres of non-stop flowers. This oh is... <laughs> and weird, weird bird sounds in the background. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's funny, actually, because um, one of the, I mean, we wanted to get you on the podcast, but the thing that reminded me too was the article you wrote in Hortus about, uh, or articles you wrote about your time at Benton End, uh, um, right. which it has, it captures all the magic of the travel writing, but obviously by staying in one place that isn't far away at all, um, it must have been quite the experience to spend some time there. And, and also what a challenge to, to deal with that garden. Yeah, it was cool. It was really, we felt so lucky. Well, we, it was, it came out of a, a lack of travel. Yeah. As you, thanks for it. It's lovely hearing people read Hortus because it's a, it's a journal that's very sort of dear to my heart, but it's, um, it was a, we were meant to go traveling for three months. We just had a baby. The plan long had this plan uh, that we were going to go away and, and take time off work. And, and obviously with the pandemic that all fell through. So no longer Italy and lovely, um, lovely Adriatic. It was just um, Suffolk instead, but that was just the most amazing thing ever. So it just coincided with the museum uh, acquiring this this very beautiful garden. Well, what what was a very beautiful garden, Benton End, the uh, former sort of home and residence of Cedric Morris, who was a very famous iris breeder uh, and artist. And uh, and so the museum needed someone to kind of look after the space. So yeah, we, it was just like one of those amazing life things where the timing sort of fitted perfectly they needed someone to look after it and live on site so we sort of moved to this little cottage and uh on the main site of the garden and yeah and just started sort of picking our way through it and seeing what still remained which was cool what a voyage of discovery yeah I mean, alan can you imagine just like rocking up you know, leaving london and rocking up to an amazing historic spot in suffolk and with that garden I, with that history no, I, can. I can i can indeed I was just talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know, that, uh, that if, if you can associate the plants with Cedric Morris, it immediately um, achieves almost cult status. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like the, the old roses and the, I mean, the Benton end irises, the Benton, Benton irises. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah. They're all, they've all achieved this kind of cult status. When you actually go back, I think it's quite fascinating. If you go back to the early writings of Miss Beth Chateau, Mrs. Beth Chateau. Yeah. You will find that she was influenced greatly by Cedric because um, he grew plants that nobody else grew. I mean, he grew alliums and, sh and she was doing flower arranging at the time. And he gave her bulbs of alliums. Mm. Nobody grew alliums. They were the wild things on the continent and things, you know. Yeah. Um, but it is fascinating when you sit, you know, you can appreciate how important it is that people like Cedric Cedric lived and gardened the way he did. And that wonderful little daffodil that's named after him, the little narcissus that blooms terribly, terribly early. Yes. It came from the Pyrenees, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was found. Yeah. Well, it sort of came to him by a dubious story. But yeah, yeah. Pyrenean narcissus minor. Narcissus minor yeah. Well, they've never been able to find it again. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> but it was, um, it's true. And it's its amazing, the legacy. And it's getting more and more, you know, his name is once again coming back. And it was clearly, it was that, so... That is, my, that is a great word, the legacy. You're absolutely right. It is the legacy. Yeah. And it yeah. was, I hadn't realised, you know, the more we sort of delved into it, um, he died in 82, I think, or 84, 82. And, uh, you know, seemingly his name was sort of overtaken by so many other gardeners at the time. Yeah. And, and, and I think... Um, his legacy is, is astonishing, but it, it, lots of people credit him really with the birth of kind of naturalistic gardening. You know, Beth Chatter, as you say, was, was such a, was so yeah, yeah. by the garden and this idea of, because he wasn't really a garden designer. He, his garden was never this kind of incredibly well thought out, layered, beautiful garden. It was, it was plants, you know, and, and associated yeah. plants and, and, um, and weird combinations and, and um, things very much made. To a combination. His life, wasn't it? A combination between gardening and art. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he painted these wonderful paintings of iris and roses and goodness knows what. Um, wonderful, fantastic still lives. Not that well painted. Um, and to be quite honest, they were all a bit of a joke. Um, <laughs> you know, people sort of secretly laugh at these paintings. They don't laugh today because they're worth thousands and thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah, and suddenly yeah. they take off. And if you go to Cedric Morris hanging on your wall, don't even bother to ask because I haven't. <laughs> Finding yeah, them, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they, they would be worth a lot of money. I did go to an antique sale once at um, Sheringham Hall in Norfolk when they were selling the contents of that house, and there was a fire screen, a little fold-up fire screen painted by Cedric. Oh, wow. And a friend of mine was going to buy it, and it, it made the huge sum then of six thousand pounds, and he didn't. I bet he's kicking himself today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were, yeah, it's it's just amazing the kind of, the, the, the recent resurgence, the, the sort yeah. of re-wave. And it really was kicked off in lots of ways. Obviously, with Philip Mould finding lots of the paintings and sort of yeah. looking into that. But with Sarah Cook, you know, the ex head gardener yeah. at Sisson yeah. and, and sort of rejuvenating the Iris collection and, and bringing them back into popular cultivation. Yeah. yeah. So what was it like delving into that garden? And what state was it in when you started work on it? Well, like you said, it was it was it it, it had this element of, of exploring a wild country, really, you know, or you know, a, a, a wild landscape because it he what survived. So he was quite rare, Cedric Morris, in the fact that he appointed the garden's executor when he died to, to sort of give away all of his plants. So all the perennials, pretty much all the perennials, uh, lots of the shrubs, lots of things were given away. So what remained were basically were, were species bulbs, which he was really into. Uh, that were able to self-seed and, and you know how hard it is to eradicate any kind of bulb really from a garden completely and so uh, really what I was finding was mostly throughout spring and so it was this this, this wonderful journey of um, of I suppose you know a, a walk like you say a walk through Europe really like finding these plants as they as they started to, to arrive which would just sort of link to various travels that he went on you know he's back and he was very much in that era where you could squirrel things into suitcases probably not even hide what you would pillaging from the from from these sort of rare environments uh, and so he brought back some of these plants himself um, obviously he was given them as well and he sort of acquired quite a collection but so what survived really were the, the formal sort of um sort of arrangement of the garden which for a time was these kind of island beds um, and there's a sort of theory that he might have been one of the early precursors of that those you know the, the sort of Richard Bloom island um uh, Alan Bloom island situation island bed situation but but um yeah, it was originally that and that kind of morphed slowly over time as you got older and, and weeds crept in to these effectively to meadows. So so um, grass had all crept in and within these meadows is sort of four block meadows in the old wall garden. That's where I would find, you know, in really random places, these these kind of sparks of colour. Um, and it was so exciting. So every morning I'd go out, you know, with my tea or whatever and, and walk, walk sort of barefoot through the garden and slowly find, oh, wow, there's an ornithogallum there or there's an amazing muscari there. Or um, So it really was bulbs mostly with a few old shrubs that still remain. That is so exciting. Yeah, it was cool. It's a real geeky <laughs> pursuit, but I loved it. It's hard to explain to my friends back in London who weren't of the gardening sort, but it was just it was just everything I wanted to do and we had because we had our new you know we had a, a, a sort of one-year-old at the time and so it was like it was just a really like amazing while everything was locked down as well I mean that's what made the magic was the idea that we kind of had to be on our own in this space like it was all kind of you know um on lockdown really so it was a good excuse to disappear into a garden like that. Has it influenced what you've done since in terms of gardening and, and plant choices and design or anything? 
Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I used to grow all sorts of silly blousy cultivars in parts and things like that. And especially, I mean, which is great, but in the garden museum, you know, I think it took, it was a nice link with the museum because it, it really sort of tuned my eye. I mean, Cedric had this amazing eye for, um, for the very subtle details of bulbs. That's what he loved. You know, he was obsessed with dark fertilities, these fertilities that really you have to get right up close to, to kind of appreciate the subtleties of, of the various chestnuts and oaks and, you know, colorations of browns. Um, so I, and that really tuned my eye, I think, you know, I, I, it made me think, well, why not? You know, the museum is small. We have a beautiful courtyard. It's, it's a place to try interesting species plants in parts that people don't necessarily recognize or know. So it really sent me on a journey of, um, of how to do more interesting species parts and things like that. Have any of those made it into show and tell today? Any of your interesting? Ooh. No, I almost picked, I did almost, <laughs> almost pick an ornithogallum and something else, but no, I, I've done my show and tell is, yeah, well, we'll come on to it, but um, <laughs> no, none of those, none of those have made it in, unfortunately. <laughs> and you've just moved into a new house. Yes. What kind of garden does your new house have? It's small. <laughs> I'm looking at the entirety of it right now. It's small, but it's weirdly, it's my, believe it or not, it's my first ever garden of my own. So it's, um, it's a classic rectangle in a, in a sort of uh, a terrace street. Uh, in a tiny village in Hampshire and uh, it's chalk which is totally new for me I've never gardened on chalk before um, and it's very exciting so it's it's currently I don't know I don't want to be yeah it's hard not to be rude about the, the things you inherit isn't it? <laughs> there's some shockers out there but they, you know they've had a go they had a bloody good go <laughs> I don't think you need to worry about being rude about it because I'm I'm doing the same thing in my garden the whole time and that is these, these, these what some people might call basic ordinary plants that you, you plant because they're probably good doers, if you like. Yeah. When you get to a stage in your life, you think, well, you really are so common. I ought to get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that, isn't there that, no, you, do. you know, does it bring me joy? There's all that. I've tried to apply that to the garden recently. Who is it that wrote, that wrote the whole book about that? Does it bring me joy? I'm, so I'm looking through these plants currently of what previously has been planted in this tiny little garden and, and um, trying to base it on whether, well, also whether it's well suited. Lots of geraniums and things, I suppose. Uh, and there are a few roses that need to go. <laughs> the thing is, what, what brings you joy does change because this is my first garden of my own. Oh, cool. I really wanted, of all things, of all the things, I really wanted a flowering currant. Um, and, so, and so I got one and now... I'm not sure it does bring me as much joy in a small garden as I wanted it to. Um, yeah. So I sort of, I'm really torn because it's a lovely, mature thing and it is glorious in the spring, but I'm not sure it does bring me as much joy as I wanted, as it did when I first put it in. So I suppose what brings that's us joy... No, but that's typical. That is typical because we all did, we've all done that, I think, when we start with something. I mean, I remember my first Deutsche that I, I bought, spring flowering Deutsche, and I thought it was the most wonderful thing since sliced bread, but I soon grew out of it. I have a small garden. You have a small garden, Matt, but Alan, you haven't always had 32 acres. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I gardened wherever I, I gardened for, first of all, both grandparents' houses. I had my own little garden and I could do what I liked with it. And I, could, I used to get castigated, but I made a, I made a, a, a parterre out of Lanissa and Nitida. Um, and I used to clip it with Granny's sewing scissors and I got crossed, uh, castigated for that because the blunt of her scissors. Um, and then when I moved to London, I, I've had, I had a garden on a, on a roof, which was notoriously hot and dry and dried out. All the containers on the roof dried out terribly. There weren't automatic watering systems in those days. Yeah. So you had to lug cans around, which was a bit tragic. Then I had a garden in 
what was a light well, really, which is like a, a roofless cellar almost. <laughs> but I grew hostas and ferns and mossy things and, you know, things that like dripping <laughs> yeah. conditions. So I ad- adapted. So, yeah. And then then we came to live here. I do know next year in 2023, it is 50 years since we bought this house. Oh, wow. You two whippersnappers, well, you just can't comprehend that. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. Where has the time gone? It was that 50 years of garden as well, or did you leave it for a little while, or did you jump straight? No, 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 we bought it. We, we came up every weekend, Matt, for the first 13, 14 years, I suppose. Right. Um, we had our holidays here as well. Um, and I, I, I think it was the advent of modern telecommunications that allowed us to come and live here permanently. Um, then we bought a little bit of extra land. So we started with two and a half acres. Um, we then went up to 22 acres, no, 20 acres. And then we went up to 32 acres. Um, but it's not all, you know, it's not all, there's not 32 acres of formal gardens here. Nearly. There's <laughs> <laughs> no, woodland and there's, there's areas where we planted collections of trees and orchards and oh. all that kind of thing as well. So it's not, it's not all. Hello. <laughs> I'm being interrupted by my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and actually as well it divides up into i suppose smaller spaces and smaller gardens none of them quite as small as uh well as we worked out with ian roof uh, your drawing room is the size of ian roof's garden so that's where we're at our garden <laughs> is the size of the rooms in alan's house so okay cool <laughs> i'm i'm intrigued to know what my garden would match up to probably a yeah. Which room? <laughs> country, I suppose, yeah. So I suppose after that wonderful foray into your gardening exploits, Matt, we should look at some of the plants you have picked from the Garden Museum. I'm a bit disappointed you didn't do show and tell from this garden you've just bought. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just <laughs> ask about, about, about some of the plants at the Garden Museum? Because I think, if I remember correctly, you've got some interesting plants like uh, schlepheras and things growing in the garden there. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. So in the recent, so the more recent, so five-year-old garden, uh, which is redesigned by Dan Pearson. Um, yeah. We used to have a, a sort of um, an old parterre garden and uh, that very much reflected the sort of tradescant history in the garden. But it, when we, we, we sort of had to change the garden when we renovated it, it was quite a sort of unfortunate, um, you know, difficult decision because it, it meant sort of reconfiguring the whole thing. And we, um, tried all sorts of different configurations of buildings but anyway what happened is we ended up with a brand new space um and so it, it felt right it was encased in glass so it felt right to design something more contemporary and modern so yeah there are lots of interesting plants it, it the, dan pearson has sort of conceived it as a effectively a giant wardian case like a big glass box that within it houses and so it ties into that history of plant collecting but it sort of houses within it what were probably at the time and this is five years on um what we hoped would be slightly interesting slightly disorientating planting so planting that gardeners you know would come in and not necessarily recognize all of the plants and that was the idea and things move so fast in horticulture that you know most of these plants are now sort of traffic island you know, <laughs> bog standard you know, <laughs> plants that everyone's growing really we get the occasional people coming in but yeah it's, it's interesting um planting and it's exciting and so it's things you know it's, it's sort of interesting ginger lilies and like wood wood ginger lily the yellow one and um i'm trying to think and we got a very sort of rare massive dahlia in the middle uh Tamaulipana, which is a, a dahlia that was introduced. I just bought that. Have you? I've literally <laughs> what just I'm talking bought about. It. This is what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And I, I, I brought it from Stephen Lou Edney. Um, okay. I, I went to do a talk the other day in Lincolnshire, and they were doing a talk. Steve was doing a talk there as well, and they brought some plants to sell, and there was this dahlia there. Right. Thought, right. Wow, I've got to have that. Yeah. And Lou actually said, "I knew you'd buy this." <laughs> <laughs> 
that's interesting. So it's it's massive. It's giant. It's a real beast. But it's not giant in the, in the way that um, uh, Imperial and in, in, in what's the huge one? Yeah, Imperialis. Imperialis is it's it's more of a vast dome. But it, yeah. it ours flowers in sort of December time, which is amazing. Yeah, well, uh, I don't I don't think in the in in the northeast in northeast Norfolk we'll ever get away with that. But I have got something very similar that started flowering this year in April. Oh wow. Uh, well, I'll just tell you what happened because we have one of these tree dahlias from Mexico. It came from Creek Park, Creek, Creek plants. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I planted it on the south facing wall of our house, and this winter has been very mild, so it kept its old stems. Uh, uh, they were uh, they they you know didn't die right back. They died half back, so I topped them off, um, yeah. and the side shoots actually came out in March, and in April they started flowering. Wow, it's still in flower now. So what, I mean, they, what is it? It oh, it's not. It's Tenny Recallis, I think. One of the tree dailies from Krug. Right. It's one that, that is actually slightly more precocious at flowering than, than lots of the others. Excellent. And it. But, I mean, the, the, its sisters, which I, do, I divided the tuber when I got it, its sisters, which were in the open garden, they don't flower until probably October, September, late September, early October. But this right. one, you know, because it's kept its new growth. So I, I was just questioning in my mind, in actual fact, with our climate changing, and I mean, your 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 in case in London obviously is a lovely yeah. enclosed warm space. Mm. But with, with our climate changing the way it is, perhaps we can expect these dahlias to flower if they if they hang on to their old growth, yeah, winter and then reshoot. You yeah. know, they, I think their timings are also kind of mixed up. I think you're quite right. Yeah, absolutely. I think letting it's, it's such a foreign concept to us to, to allow yeah. Aelia to continue, mm. you know, and it might get slightly blackened. It might get just a bit hit, but yeah. maybe not, not, not enough to, to knock it fully out. And I did flower, I did flower Tenuary Callis out in the garden. It opened on January the 6th. The flower opened on January the 6th in the morning and by, by lunchtime it'd been blown off. <laughs> <laughs> for that moment. That fleeting moment. Yeah. yeah. All year I waited for that. <laughs> that's what it's about though i love that um the the tamalapana has this yeah very beautiful sort of li like lilac-y um lavendery kind of uh soft purple effect it's beautiful yeah. um and it, if we're lucky it comes out late november and we've got it for a month and a bit um but yeah it's it's yeah great so there we go that's a great example of how plants that we think are very exciting and new are already very quickly sort of dispersing and you know, dysphorums weren't such a big thing five years ago. No, they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> they were trendsetters. Well, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, I think it's also, it's also being inquisitive about, about new plants and new plantings and ways of using them. And I think yeah. we're also spurred on by the fact that our climate is changing. When, I first, when we first bought extra land here, I wouldn't have dared planted a pittosporum outside. Now, nowadays, the pittosporums yeah. are self-sowing in the, in the ground. Right. The same with Panthers, the same with eucalyptus. Um, so, you know, it's 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 weird. It's weird. But we're very lucky to be going through this period. What comes out at the other end? I don't know. But I mean, you know, it's fascinating. Agaves, I guess. And <laughs> oh, we've got those outside here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, I mean, you'll 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 know it better than I would. I mean, it, it's yeah, it's it's. It's the narrative in gardening at the moment, but it's those who have been gardening for a little bit longer, such as yourself, Alan, who will yeah. really be able to tell us whether that's, you know, because obviously there's a lot of fluctuation in seasons in general. But, yeah, you know, having to be able to have a steady eye of that across the time and see how that really has changed. That's really interesting. Yeah, It has changed because we started planting the desert wash here um, probably 20, 22 years ago, something like that. 
And what we did is we had a, um, a man with a digger came in. And it was what it was a bit like a ballet. He was watching an elephant in a tutu almost. This lumbering great machine. If you could got rid of the sound, it had been so graceful, scooping that great hollows really? to be yeah. filled with gravel and all the rest of it and then made raised beds with local flint to try and get the drainage to be as sharp as, and as quick as possible right um, and you know walking through the desert today you would never believe these are tiny little plants that you put in you're looking up at them and it's, yeah. it is amazing yeah and we have one i think it's uh nalinia um we were given there were three that were given to various people we had one the other two unfortunately died in various winters since but uh so we now have the mother of it the daughter of it and the granddaughter of it. Wow. Last year, the mother had five flower spikes on. The daughter hasn't flowered yet. The granddaughter this year is, is doing this to the mother with two flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and I did like the desert wash at East Ruston. It became like a space age experience on Snowdrop Day because all the, the newer agaves and things had these little domes over them. And, uh, and then they looked like all these funny little oh, wow. aliens through the landscape. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, that's because they are babies and we do that. We have we grow them on in the greenhouse and then when they go out for the first winter, yeah. we cover them really to assist on the drainage more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, but it looks great. It looks super cool. <laughs> so, Matt, what have you brought for show okay. and tell then? Well, so I thought I just, all I've done, and I don't know how, because again, the light's not going to be very very useful here, but um, Ooh, look. all I've done is, is swipe a load of plants that aren't at their best now because they've, they've been out in the garden doing their thing really well. But the, uh, I wanted to talk about these because they, it's a space that I've been absolutely battling with for, for years since I've been at the museum for you know, a good long while. And um, this is the first year where the space has actually worked. And it's, it's incredibly windswept. It's incredibly dry. It's poor river silt um, soil. It's, it's right on the Thames. It's our sort of river facing part of the garden. Uh, it's basically it took me a really really long time to realize this but it's basically the canary islands so it's it's got a really really similar climate in the in the sense that it's generally baked sunbaked windswept um it's got the slight it's got this kind of i suppose slight saltiness coming from the river but not entirely but it it's um it's that baking wind basically that's been the issue and it it's taken me forever to work out what to plant there and i've got an endless list i'm just i've been writing it up the last week of failures in that garden because it's it's one of those real trial and error areas so what i've swiped are the are the ultimate contenders basically and these are plants i'm so thrilled and proud of because of what they've managed to achieve in that space and this this year it's really um it's really worked so so logistically uh, i'm just going to warn you if you're going to get things out of the vase dan cooper has realized that you need a towel on your lap <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do that how should I do this? Well, what I could do, I'll tell you what, should I just bring it, I'll bring it in here and I can, I'll point. Is that better? Should That's I do lovely. That? Okay, so I'll, I'll start. I mean, these are, this is just a collection. I think I've, I've bunged 10 in here. I've also put some secret surprises. I'll start with these because these don't relate to that space. These are just, and I shouldn't really pick them, so I'm being naughty here, but there are so many. I was just thrilled to see these guys. This is, um, uh, this is a, a plantain. It's the plantain that grows on chalk and it almost exclusively grows in, chalkland churchyards but it's I was just it was one of those moments of moving to an entirely new environment and going oh you're here brilliant I love you you're one of my favorites you make me feel at home and so this is um uh this is yeah plantago uh media which is which is a pink plantain which you see out in the kind of amazing meadows in in Europe in sort of uh Croatia and places like that quite a lot I mean 
maybe it's more common in certain areas and I'm not aware, but I just absolutely love this plant. It's so beautiful to find something so pink sticking out of the ground that, that otherwise takes the form of a normal plant, you know, normal plantain. Um, so that's such is, a lovely frizzly pom-pom flower. Oh, it does it oh. all. And when, and before that, you've got this really nice tight cone as well. It's just oh, it's the best. But anyway, you see those and, and really fat leaves. You see those dotted around, but they, they bear absolute no relevance to you. They would hate the environment in which the rest of these come from. But <laughs> So what have I got? So there's there's a, a geranium palmatum, which which um, again with travels and things. So I write a monthly column for the Telegraph, and it, it's a it's a travel column. And so it's uh, when I can. I actually picked it up in the in the pandemic, which is the worst time, obviously, to pick up a travel column. But um, so I was sort of writing from memory for a while. But one of the trips that I did post pandemic was to go out to Madeira, which was really great, and see some of those geraniums that grow out there. Um, there's the two Madeira geraniums. Uh, uh, palmatum and well there's three but the other one no one really grows but there's palmatum and uh, madarinci and palmatum just loves that space and so this year the heart there's just been this amazing wash of pink uh so palmatum is just yeah i mean it's biennial so obviously you sort of have on years and off years depending how much is self-sown this is and a really I, in interesting garden. one. My mum is going to love this podcast, by the way, because she loves plantains and she is geranium <laughs> palmatum's number one fan. And one uh, of the reasons okay. she loves it is that she's got this very sheltered, quite shady courtyard, but very sort of west facing. So it's a nice sun, but she's growing lots of trees, little aces and things around it. So it gets quite a lot right. of shade and they self seed in uh, every available nook and cranny in that kind of warm, slightly sort of semi-shaded spot yeah. space. And they're wonderful because the light shines through those wonderful magenta uh, yes. blooms and catches the yeah. big palm leaves as well. And uh, and they're wonderful. But it's interesting to hear that they they obviously love your situation as well. Yeah, well, they I mean, it, it, I say full sun. I mean, it's it's uh, it's west facing, so it doesn't get it's not like south. You know, there's, there's a period where they're in slight shade. So it's a bit of a mix. But um, yeah, and they have that. And rather than Madarensi, you know, I just love the fact they've got these much more splayed out flowers. They're a little bit more kind of wild looking. Madarensi can be quite clipped and bald and tight whereas yeah so that they've been amazing and this year this has just really been their year but but again what's been lovely you know every plant in this collection is is really uh you know has some kind of link really to places i've been or or, or something i've read about or, or whatever you know it's all quite sort of <laughs> with everything with the museum you know in, in sort of museum culture there's there's a lot of sort of uh, association and you know a kind of i suppose a literary element as well so so I love it for lots of reasons, but Palmatum has been amazing this year. Um, I mean, a lot, none of these are, are particularly um, rare or anything like that. You know, they're, they're just ones that work really, really well and ones that I would plant um, lots in the future. Uh, Cicerinchium striatum, which is obviously a, a bulletproof for that environment, but that those pops of yellow this year have been particularly strong. Flomis um, uh, russeliana, which is, which again, certainly common, but, um, but just does really, really well in that space. That was sort of the first plant to like, take hold in the soil like to break break the space and to like so basically the, the space started out as a hedge which was just the, the silliest idea in the world it was part of our, our front garden is, is is all yew hedge um with soft areas of soft planting which is brilliant it was conceived by christopher bradley hull and um it was just a lovely it's a really beautiful space and it was designed as a kind of piazza holding space so that visitors could come in have a bit of area to hang out before they go into the museum um but i think yeah it takes it takes having garden there a long while to, to really I mean even for me it was a shock how this particular section of hedge died so quickly despite watering 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 changing so everything we could do to keep it alive but it we're surrounded by big plane trees as well and they just sucked up every bit of moisture so so there was this one area that just just gave up the ghost basically immediately and we tried and tried and tried and, and that's when I started realizing right what can, what else can we put in there 
Um, and so Rossiano was the sort of first one to, to, I don't know, to take hold after lots of things had died. Can I, I mean, go back to the Canaries, which are, which are really, yeah, which are generally a quite a big influence for me horticulturally. I mean, the Canary Islands have got a sort of reputation for lots of things, but they're, you can't beat the horticulture. I mean, you can't beat the natural the natural plants that thrive there because they're just, yeah, they're fascinating and they've evolved in their own space and they're bizarre. So Isoplexus, which I think has gone back to Digitalis now. I can't remember. Canariensis, which is having a nice chat with Andy Sturgeon about. He's a big fan. And he, it, we were discussing the various merits of when to chop back and, and things like that, because you can really, I sort of experimented with them this year and, um, gave a few a different kind of chop and, and left some to flower. And actually those that I've chopped have really bulked up and looked amazing with, with sort of a good sort of 10 flower spikes. And, and, and so you can very quickly sort of bulk them up by chopping them at the right time, which I think I did back in March. Um, and so, yeah, they, um, uh, that's been a really cool one. And these pops of orange go really well. I think I'm a big fan of orange. That, that, that digitalis or isoplexus that we used to be called isoplexus canariensis, that's been used as a cross with other foxgloves now, and there's a whole range of them that yeah. bear the isoplexus, shall we say, bloodline. Yeah. Um, and they also don't have quite the hardiness of a good old common old foxglove. No, they certainly don't. No, no, yeah. no. So, no. I mean, they are plants for a changing climate, really. I mean, I've grown that for years, and quite often um, isoplexus, I take cuttings every year, but quite often we used to lose it in the winter. Right. This past winter, I mean, they're flowering in my garden now, and um, that is because they have done so well with the climate change again. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Did I see a tucrium leaf? Of course, of course. Yeah, what yeah. what Mediterranean garden wouldn't be complete without a tucrium? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, where am I? Where is my tucrium? Yeah, he's in there somewhere. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, that's just fruticans. But um, again, that's. I mean, they're they're a mixed bag, really. I think they're and there are more and more kind of coming into cultivation now, aren't there? They're, they're, they're a really diverse genus and there's lots and lots of them out there. But, um, and I know quite a few have gone into the new garden at Sissinghurst in uh, the, the sort of Delos remake, yeah. um, again by Dan um, with Troy there and lots of more interesting ones. Yeah, that's in there. There's quite a few. That's kind of one of the more structural shrubs. What I don't have is is some of my junipers. I've been putting, I mean, they. that's going to take, I'm probably going to be, a, certainly have left the job or at least have died by the time uh, they, those junipers get up to a really good size but they they're also a fantastic plant for that kind of environment they've done really really well uh gray owl is the one that i've been growing um particularly it's a nice big slightly glaucusy uh gray um coloration which is beautiful um and uh that's an, that along with the tucrium uh vitex and a few others that make the kind of structural elements of that garden but um yeah but 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 you can just explain what vitex is and what it looks like i think for everybody listening it's it's kind of, vitex is a funny kind of it's almost buddlier like um, yes it's much more refined come 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 yeah. come <laughs> oh, quite quite exactly yeah i saw it i saw it growing in um where did i see it in sardinia and loved it and found it growing along a sort of riparian environment uh but but dealing very well with that kind of heat thought ah oh, that might work very well for this space so yeah right it's, it's just a very elegant i would oh yeah very elegant but there with, with sort of more refined thinner flowers and yeah that same, I mean, a blue kind of purple coloration and white and white right yeah, yeah. um yeah, so that's in there, but I don't have it with me. And then Cranby. So some things get bunged in from exhibitions. We did a big exhibition on uh, Derek Jarman uh, based on his Prospect Cottage Garden. And um, 
it's actually where I got the shingle. We did, we, uh, we filled one of the spaces in the garden museum for the exhibition space with, with sort of shingle for the floor to recreate the sense of, of, of stepping over the stones in uh, Dungeness. And so that heavy shingle I repurposed once the planting had gone in. So that exhibition opened in 2020, as soon as we were able to open uh, after the first lockdown, I think. Um, I think it's between the lockdowns. And so that was, it was great. It was really popular. Was, I mean, Derek Jarman's very popular in general now and, and uh, especially about the garden and, and with the republication of books. But we, I just repurposed, as soon as the planting was finished, I used all that shingle, the sort of tons and tons of shingle that we put on the floor at the exhibition to, to finish off as a mulch. Because it all felt very dungeness as well. I mean, the, the landscape, yeah. it still has that same, uh, that same environment. So sea kale, we've grown lots of, uh, for the exhibition anyway and so that and that came from Beth Chateau Nursery and so that that's gone in as well it's not flowered but it, it sort of dotted itself around in various kind of wild um, kind of sense. Uh, you have to watch out if you grow that though because it's it's a beloved um, food plant of the large white butterfly and it can wonder just... actually I did should I check for eggs I, did <laughs> I mean everyone's got to do their bit for wildlife haven't they? yeah exactly that. But that's a great point. You yeah. know, Matt, that is my line when anybody says to me in the garden, you've got nettles over there, be that they're food of butterflies. Of course they are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got to give something back, right? Exactly. <laughs> that cranberry leaf is such a lovely foil, that kind of lovely glaucous and, and the, the shape yeah, of the is. leaf, that lovely frothy sort of frillyish edge. To quote, to quote your mum, it butchers up that arrangement, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, elementary I have masculinity. There's certainly yeah. a, a collection of items, much like our, our museum, as opposed to a sort of, or much like Cedric Morris's style, than a you know necessarily a pretty arrangement. But yeah, um, that's um, it comes up beautiful with the, the early purple spikes as well as they start to unfurl. Is is yeah. lovely as well with the cranberries. So there's that, and what I think there's, and then just some. I think there's some Lapita in there. There's Six Hills Giant, and there's. Uh, Senio potentially but yeah there's a few Napitas that, that have obviously taken well to that space as well um yeah and some I really love the pink it's that kind of wildflower combo of the pink of the geranium palmatum with the yellow of the flomus and the cicerinchium there's that gorgeous thing that nature so often does yeah combining really strong pinky purples with yellow and I think gardeners well, certainly, I mean, Alan, we talk about it almost every week, I think, that people have this hatred of yellow, but it is such a joyful, wonderful uh, combination. I love it. I mean, there are there are good yellows and bad yellows, but I, I yeah, I mean, you're forgetting nitpicky about it. But in general, I think yellow, yellow and orange for me are great. But it's also an excuse that, that, you know, if you're going to have sun, it's an area, it's the only area in the garden of sun, really. And so it's an excuse to do colour. And so, you know, we're, we're very refined in other ways. Our, our courtyard garden is a, is a very refined, elegant palette of, of greens and more greens and lots more greens. <laughs> <laughs> which is and it work it really does work and beautiful whites and, and spring pockets of color but it's um and so and, and it's what we have to do with lots of our woodland planting as well because we, we call it woodland planting because of the enormous plane trees but similar environment but so this this area is really my excuse to to muck around with color and so yeah it started off as like it's going to be just blues and yellows was my original plan but soft blues and yellows and then obviously pinks came in and, and oranges and and yeah so it's all sorts now and there's a there's a great i didn't get it i should have i don't know why i didn't but there's a lovely there's lots of um, the Italicum um, papaver uh, poppy that, that also floats this orange throughout the space as well, which is great. Well, that's lovely, yeah. What do, considering that there's so much um, restrained, classy planting elsewhere, what do regular visitors make to a crazy, wildish colour combo? 
Yeah, I don't know. I hope it's quite, you know, it's 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 really exploded with kind of this year really for the first time. I think everything was sort of getting ready. And so so I don't know, people do stuff and it's it's funny, it's not an area you, you can really it's only for the brave to access because it, it's it's not obvious. It's kind of I don't, I'm, I'm always pleased when I see someone who's made it in there because it, you see it, from, you kind of get a glimpse from it, but it's all raised up. And we built these. It's got some of these sort of um, uh, dry stone. It's got a bit of dry stone in there and stuff in it because it's all raised up above the street level. So you can sort of see it as you come past, but it's all tucked away. And so I love it when people sort of find like barge their way through and find their way in because <laughs> obviously they've been intrigued by it. But yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I think people like it. I think they're used. To, I think they're. It's not been coloured there before. And I think Nigel Dunnett said something recently. I interviewed him about the super bloom that he's doing at the Tower of uh, Tower of London, and he made a really good point about how colour actually is. It's kind of fundamental to human beings, and and in terms of flowers, like and 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 flower colour. Nigel has said this about flowers. Andy Sturgeon has said this about garden design. It's about you know he's tried lots of elegant designs with greens and whatnot, and 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 really people just love colour. And and yeah. there's something about flowers, however mishmash the colour is, it's still so alluring, and you know, people still want it. And I think yeah. that's I hope that the garden's gone down quite well in that regard. Well, that sounded very profound, but I think it's the way people are thinking today. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if you go back to the 1970s, everything had to be pale white. And I mean, I remember um, a piece of writing when Crystal Lloyd said, oh, well, why don't you grow a cream flowering uh, rose against a cream wall? And if you really want to be picky, you can take all the leaves off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read an article a few years ago where um, somebody pointed out, probably a psychologist or something, pointed out that when we're children, we get dressed in colour, all of our like toys are colorful, our rooms are painted with color and, and somewhere along the way, all of the color gets stripped away and adult clothes, it's probably changing now, but adult clothes are always grays and blacks and browns and whites and, and sort of more muted palettes. And yet actually color does, not to everybody I'm sure, but it does bring joy. It does lift your spirits. It's intrinsic, yeah, completely. There's something very, yeah. It See, I never got to the grey stage. You open my wardrobe and it looks like an oversized toddler lives here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's in now. You're right, that's in. That's on the right side of it. <laughs> and dungarees for adults as well. Yeah, the well, fashions, <laughs> they've been listening to my mind. <laughs> yeah, and a combination of pink and peach for, yeah. for the set, of course. Exactly. exactly. So on trend. Yeah. <laughs> so does this mean when you get gardening in your uh, your chalky new plot that it's going to be a, a riot of colour or are you going to be going? Well, I could, be sort of, I could be sort of, yeah, what's the, uh, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a real array of, so, what, what's it, sorbus of, of white beams here. There's, there's something about chalk I'm learning. It's, it's new to me and it might just be, I'm sure it's just a very passing spring thing, but everything feels pastel. Like there's there's a real light kind of very soft gray kind of cheekiness to the whole thing and and, and and i love white beams in general but they're just they're everywhere here they obviously grow really well on chalk and they're, they they just look stunning and there's this very like airy lightness and i think you could match that with you know with lots of kind of it's it's the it's, it's the things that love the fields it's those light pinks geraniums and and lights you know, um, trefoils and um, knapweeds and all that kind of mm. stuff, but, you know. They, so I th I'm tempted, yeah, I'm going to continue with the colour, I think. I, there's no point. I'm going to, my exciting thing is, I mean, exciting, the whole thing is terrace fences. So so I'm going to really invest in climbers in a whole new way. I'm really excited about trying every single kind of climber I can get my hands on. So that's all new to me. You know, there are lots of sort of tried and tested ones, but lots that I don't know and have never grown before. So I'm that's what I'm really excited about is first step, get, get every single bit of wall 
started with a climber you know and um, and box myself in <laughs> and then start adding as much color beneath that you know as I can I don't know enough about chalk to make any recommendations I mean Alan I don't know whether you've got a, a great well, you know so much so you probably do have a whole part of your brain that's just chalky climbers but is there anything you recommend <laughs> I don't know much about chalky climbers but I do know that chalk of viburnums go, grow very well on on chalk and I know that some of them can actually be trained and cut providing you're the master of them um to to grow against the wall uh, Robert Lane Fox was writing a few weeks ago and it was a fairly common viburnum I can't remember the exact name now but he cuts it back immediately after flowering which is in May right um, and it makes just enough growth to be to keep it close to the wall interesting so that was quite a useful tip, tip I think. And then, and of course, you know, pink hydrangeas. You won't get blue on chalk. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Mm. Um, is the, the Nature Reserve Hills and Holes up at Barnack, um, which I love to go to, I'm fairly certain that is chalk, and that's always covered in pulsatillas. You uh, get all those yeah. wonderful, you know, the pink yeah. bells of the past flower and then the frizzly, crazy cousin it seed heads. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a great point, pulsatillas. Yeah, yeah. That's that meadowy kind of crisp early Yeah. yeah. Um, Viburnum's interesting. Yeah, I, I had this idea of, because it's such a small garden, my original plan was to try and do it all from seeds and cuttings and not actually buy any plants was my plan. I don't know how far I was going to get with that, but <laughs> I, I went and pillaged my parents' garden for all sorts of shrubs and, and climbers and things, which are all growing on as cuttings and seemingly doing okay so far, but I don't know whether I'll get, it was kind of a, a test of my you know, patience and endurance is to see whether I can, I'm always shocked at how quickly things actually do grow and bulk up. And I thought, well, why not try an entire garden from seed or from cutting? So that's that the current thinking. Um, I didn't quite do that, but I did try for budget reasons to start with plug plants and a few in lots of seed and cuttings and things, but then it, it, it didn't work. I bought a lot <laughs> yeah, you go, yeah as soon as you're in the nursery that's it i know a plant fair or, or whatever is going uh, that on. would make a very good book a garden from seed and cuttings well that's partly what i wanted um. <laughs> uh, don't tell well, that should keep your focus <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i wanted i wanted but um no it's more i think it's more just i haven't it's yeah things will grow here even in this tiny space that, that i struggled to grow at the garden museum for, for for various different environmental reasons and so um it was more just the joy of propagation that I'm, I'm kind of wanting to get back into really here yeah well we might have just given you a few flomos I suppose as you consider how to plant up your chalky garden uh, if you are tuning in for the first time flomo is that feeling that fear of missing out you get when you see a plant or a member of plant that you haven't got and you feel like you must have it it's a must-have in your life um it's interesting that you obviously we talked so much about Benton End uh, mm. A dear friend of ours who featured on our Galanthophile special many moons ago here on Talking Dirty, the wonderful Brian Ellis, has quite the collection of Benton irises and his Instagram has kept me flow-mowing after lots oh, of no. them. Joyfully, I, I got um, Benton Olive from Beth Chateau's nursery last year, which was a wonderful moment and I, have, yeah. I adore her. But I absolutely loved Benton Farewell on um, Brian's Instagram, which is this very pale lilac. It's almost grey, which you wouldn't think would be my bag, really. But it has this sort of lemony blush to it, bronzy. The orange is coming in because I do love orange. Bronzy sort of veining brush strokes to it so subtle and classy the opposite really to most of my plant choices so I, I really really thought that would be a lovely one for the garden and Benton Evora as well which is purple yeah. with flushes of pink 
and uh, and kind of an orange beard so more orange to yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> to go in my yeah. many many toned orange garden so yeah benton irises always um give me flomo um so they're they're yeah, they're just two but do go and check out galanthaholics instagram because there are so many and you're going to want all of them <laughs> They really are. And it's incredible. And they keep getting found all the time. You know, Sarah, Sarah Cook is working, endeavouring to give us more. So she's tracking them down all across yeah. the world, I think. So, yeah, they're fab. Matt, whereabouts do you think you are with your Flomo? Is there anything in particular that's screaming out to you that you just want to get? Well, my big thing at the moment, and this is going to completely undermine my what I, everything I just said about trying to grow everything myself, is the one <laughs> thing I do want to get is, is the right tree for this space. I can probably afford maybe two trees, but that's about it for the space that we've got, you know, two small compact trees. And there's nothing more fun than, than sort of getting the perfect tree for the perfect space. Um, so really for me right now, I was, I was in Texas, I was in Texas, yeah, I was in Texas at the beginning of the year and just in time to see all of the Eastern red buds coming out, which is the Circus canadensis, which is just like everywhere. And so you'd, you'd see them in the hedges and you see them as standard trees in the street. And they were just forgetting that way that, I mean, there was a great uh, Judas tree in, in at Benton End, uh, the, the classic Judas tree, so the costume, but it, it, and it was vast and old and gangly and beautiful, but, but seeing that, that there's something about the canadensis that's stunning. So currently my thinking is that that would be of, of my two, that would be the, the tree I'd most want in this garden. It's a fleeting passing moment that it flowers, but nothing flowers like that. It's just astonishing. And then um, I would otherwise go for the American, again, American, everything's American with me at the moment, but American uh, Pitagus um, Carrierii, which is the, the hybrid, which is, uh, you don't see it planted here as much. Weirdly, it made its way into uh, agricultural use as a hedging plant. I don't know when and for how long, but you sometimes see it these amazing berries turn up in the in the hedges. Saw it once in Suffolk, but um, that as a as a standard tree is is beautiful as well. So that that's where I'm really thinking at the moment is trees and uh, uh, yeah, those two. Oh, I was you know earlier I really wanted to ask you if you were going to put a tree or two in that garden and what you were going to pick. So I'm really glad I I didn't I didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's what I'm after. Oh, brilliant. Well, what about you, Mr. Gray? Where is your flomo at this week? Well, it's very boring from, 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 from what you, you two have just said, actually. Um, I'm still lusting after a rose, and you'll know the rose that I'm lusting after, and it was a single rose that we saw at the Chelsea Flower Show. It has single blush white flowers with a box of red stamens. It's just the common old garden, Jacqueline Dupre, uh, which I think is lovely. And yeah. you know what? I've and bought said, it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got it, and he door. hasn't. <laughs> And I haven't had time to go. And she's bought it and I haven't got it. <laughs> Extra promo right now. But it will, it will come. And the other one that I thought has reminded me of this this morning, the rose that I want is called the Shropshire Lab. It's an Austin rose. Um, it's basically the same colour as her shirt. It's kind of pink and apricot and peachy and kind of meringue and gooey and lovely and tasty and smelly. And I wish I have, have, it, have it. It's growing in a friend of mine's garden. And uh, Suzanne... You introduced me to it. I forgot about it. I've just remembered it. I'm going to have it. <laughs> I really, I wanted Shropshire Lad for a long time and I got this garden and I bought it bare root and the dog dug it up three times wow. in about a month because obviously I put all the food around it. And so I, I was very oh, worried no. for it. <laughs> I was very worried that it was going to have such a bad start in life, but amazingly, despite that rocky start, it is so 
strong, vigorous, healthy, this lovely flushed new growth, uber floriferous, amazing smell. Whenever I walk, I mean, my garden is very small, but I kind of walk in the direction of that rose and you just in the warm air just start to get that drift of lovely rose scent coming towards you so yeah it's you, absolutely you, you, wonderful. Two, you two are probably going to think i'm mad but i have today decided that i'm going to plant a passion flower we had an abutilon growing on the south front of the house which um it grew very uh it, more leaves than flowers many many more leaves than flowers one of the small flower um hybrids a bit like um um hot lava or something like that um, and it, you know, the 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 amount of leaf was too much for the flower. Yeah. So I have decided to put a passion flower out there, and it's one of those very tender pink ones. Ah. I've had it growing in my greenhouse, and it's got too big, um, and I'm loath to cut it. So I'm going to put it out on that front. If it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. But if it gives me a summer of, of oohs and ahs from these flashy pink flowers i shall enjoy it we're about to um are we just going to switch our we've had cerula growing in the in the courtyard yeah. here and we're going to switch it out for um for victoria i'm just waiting for them to grow on slightly more i picked it up at chelsea um so i'll be i'll be in line with you then and we'll see how yeah. we do yeah i'm excited <laughs> yeah you can come to the funeral of mine and i'll come to the funeral <laughs> of <laughs> most likely yeah well you never know you never know always oh. back your luck yeah, yeah. Well, what an exciting array of plants, so much inspiration. And it's lovely to actually, you know, talk to the living, breathing Matt Collins rather than just read your words on a page. However much, you know, you come to life through your writing, it is lovely to actually talk to you. Yeah, well, it's great. I've loved it. It's been brilliant. Thanks for having me. <laughs> come back again. But yeah. in the meantime, happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.